What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Josh Marshall podcast. We are going to talk about abortion today. Not exclusively, but we were reviewing, you know, what's going on in the news before we started the episode. And, you know, as usual, you get like, you know, three, four, five different stories we want to touch on. And uh, all but one of them, and arguably all of them, turn in some way on this leak a week or so ago the Alito, Alito uh, draft majority opinion in an opinion uh, overturning Roe. Uh, and then you have the reaction to it uh, of some sort, which is this you know law that would codify Roe, would actually, I guess, uh, bump it up a bit uh, from what, you know the, the, the status quo as of, let's say, January 2021, because obviously a, a row has been shipped away at, well, it's been, it's been, it's been shipped away at since uh, the 90s, but um, even more so in these kind of shadow dockety kind of ways uh, over the last couple of years. In any case, so uh, we're going to talk about that, this, this, this bill, they are, I mean, at this point, it's going to be a test vote because they don't even have 50 votes and it would be, it's filibustered anyway. Um, and we'll get into what the strategy is or lack of strategy is uh, beyond that. And we're going to talk about a number of other issues that, that, turn on that. So, you know, we're so much to get into. I'm just going to, let me just kind of do some ad business first. We can kind of dig into everything here. It's peak iced coffee season, that wonderful time of year where you start planning your next iced coffee order while walking home with your current iced coffee. And it's all fun and vibes until your July credit card statement arrives. Luckily, there's no need to go cold turkey when saving money is as easy as switching to cold brew. With Grady's Cold Brew Beanbag Kit, you can brew 36 servings of refreshing New Orleans-style iced coffee for just a buck a cup. That's a major savings compared to buying at your local shop. Plus, your fridge will be stocked with coffee next time you have a craving whenever that hits, which I'm guessing is any minute now. Ready to give it a swirl? Save 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So, Kate Riga, co-host Kate Riga, we were talking just before we started where there's kind of like a follow-up uh, Politico scoop uh, overnight and that new one, and we'll, there's some there's some kind of uh, uh, tea leave reading details in the bylines on that, but the, the key of this, in case you haven't 
uh, Reddit, and and we are recording this episode just after noon on Wednesday, uh, May 11th. In case you haven't read it, basically it just says, in fact, all the five justices who are who are down with the Alito opinion, who were down with it in February, they're still down with it. And there's no revised opinion. So nothing has changed. In fact, and this is sort of interesting, there's actually uh, no one has written or circulated a dissent yet. Maybe there was maybe admittedly, I, I kind of read the, you know, the top lines in the article, maybe it kind of got into why that would be the case. But one point they made is that one point the article made is that the way the Supreme Court uh, work process operates is they have an initial meeting. They get a basic sense of who's, you know, who's where. Um, someone is assigned to write a draft majority opinion. If there's a clear, you know, if there's a clear majority position in in that initial meeting, uh, and then people write dissents in response to the majority opinion. And and then there's some evolution where maybe uh, maybe the majority, you know, because we tend to think of these as you know kind of coming down from the heavens, like you know Moses's tablets or something. But these are people writing them, and the dissents are dissenting from the majority opinion. So they need to see the majority opinion before they can dissent to it, right? They need to know what it says before they can disagree with it and say particularly, you know, because often um, often in these opinions they're saying. At this one point, you said X, Y, Z. You're full of it. That's dumb when you said X, Y, Z. And this other, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, So in a sense, there wouldn't necessarily be revisions to the majority opinion until you get the dissents, until you get that back and forth. Um, Presumably, if there were any uh there's different there's slightly different ways things can evolve but in any case the, the the basic point is nothing's changed this isn't like oh it was you know alito you know kind of came out on fire back in february and in fact everything you know all this stuff has happened since february this new leak seems to say basically nothing's happened since february there's still five justices behind Alito's opinion, and despite the fact that the that the court's term ends in July, so they're kind of looking at you know six seven weeks to resolve this. I guess max. I mean, maybe a little more, maybe 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 two months. I guess there's not even a dissent. So that's that's where it is, and and th- that just you know in a it's interesting from a news point of view. But I think that the the import of that is that to the extent anybody had any question about whether anybody got wobbly, no one's gotten wobbly. So sometime in the next two months, we will have a, a breaking news story that Roe has been reversed and that's it. I, you know, again, I, I want to be clear. Theoretically, it's still possible something else happens, but in practice, we know where this is going. And that uh, plays into, you know, this move to codify Roe. Kate has been watching, you know, uh, watching that kind of evolve through the day. So what do, okay, put this all together for us. What's the what's the big picture now? Yeah, well, on the leak, I th- I kind of think the strangest thing that that article told us is the dissent thing because that draft Agreed. circulated in February. I mean, that's a long time ago. And if it's true that we know for instance, you know, we know Roberts didn't vote for the Alito draft and there's always some speculation that 
Kavanaugh is the most easily peel offable of the conservative majority. So, you know, there's been some speculation that this draft was leaked by someone in the Alito camp to lock in Kavanaugh to the majority and make sure that Roberts is not able to peel him off in some kind of way. But that theory, I think, loses a bit of steam with the knowledge that the dissent still isn't written because unless there's some kind of like deal making going on that has resulted in no written product and it's all been like backdoor negotiations that the liberals are involved in and they don't want to write the dissent until we see where Kavanaugh is or if he is able. I don't even I don't know. I mean, that it seems odd to me because the big takeaway from this is kind of like, okay, so you've got an unshakable five person majority. And so the liberals aren't really pushing themselves to rush their dissent, because if nobody's movable, then, OK, well, you just have to have it done by you know the end of June or whatever. That kind of is how it came across to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know a lot about how these. Well, I don't think anybody knows a lot about how these inter- or many people know a lot. I know a bit. Um, and, uh, you know, you'd say like, Kagan, got any thoughts on this? I mean, you'd think that they would you know, they get around to it, right? I mean, it kind of, I mean, yeah, there's no, they're not, they're not trying to kind of peel off Justice Thomas. I get that. But still, like, you'd think this was a, I don't know, one you'd kind of put your heart into, right? You're kind of, you know, it's, 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 it's a big one. I mean, the only thing that occurs to me is that if the five are solid, then you have a question of, well, if the five are solid, but Robert's will not join the five and presumably, well, we know the three are going to be in dissent. You know, that doesn't mean they're going to have a joint dissent. They can, everybody can, you know, prizes for everybody, right? Everybody can write a, write a dissent. Um, I would think there would be some feeling with the three that let's not just all kind of write our own thing. Like we should, this is kind of for history. We should write a a dissent, dissent that is the sort of, you know, the, the official statement of the other side for history. Now, in theory, they would, they might want to get Roberts on board with that, but it's almost impossible to imagine how that could happen. Just because, I mean, Roberts doesn't support abortion rights. He doesn't support Roe. Um, he doesn't, I think he, he doesn't want to see it fully reversed. But he is an opponent of all of its, well, many of its essential precepts. I'm not sure he is, I'm not sure that Roberts is, how much Roberts is an opponent of the entire privacy jurisprudence. But in any case, the point is, there's no way that the four of them can agree on something. And Roberts maybe hasn't written a dissent because maybe he's still trying to do something. So kind of, I can sort of see why, you know, in my very limited ability to understand how any of this works, I can sort of understand why Roberts hasn't yet. And maybe as long as he hasn't, they're waiting on him. I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, do you, does this secondary leak to the same publication and the same people. And it's kind of strewn with uh, particularly, you know, conservative insider quotes who are granted anonymity due to the sensitivity of the situation. I mean, to me, and I've thought for a while that this 
has come from the conservative camp. I honestly thought ever since it was Politico that had the leak just because, and this is such a, you know, I have no solid evidence behind this, but just Democrats love their legacy publications. It's just so (laughs) hard for me to see a liberal being like, no, I won't do the Times. I won't do the Post. I will do Politico, like the outlet famed for its amenability to Republican framing, you know? So that's always just been my kind of pet theory. But I, I mean, this seems like solidifying the case for a conservative leak, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I almost read it as... We're almost kind of we all know that now. Like yeah. it, it, there was it didn't it didn't say anything explicitly, but well, and and there's one point, and I think I mentioned this. I, I'm not sure if I published this post yet. Sometimes I have posts like kicking around for a while before I publish, and I sort of lose track. Um, there is on the article today. Uh, there are three bylines. Uh, Josh Garcine, who's Politico's longtime legal affairs Supreme Court guy. He's the first byline. Third byline is Ryan Lizza, been a friend of mine forever. Uh, and he's at this point in his, you know, he's kind of, I don't know, I don't think he's politics editor. He's a senior person there. So he's there to kind of, you know, some, uh, you know, experienced oversight kind of big picture, probably. The middle guy, the second byline is a guy named Alex Ward. Now, Gerstein's Supreme Court makes perfect sense. It's his byline. Ryan is there as sort of, you know, kind of gray beard kind of type. This Ward guy is a national security reporter. And he was on, he had the second byline on the first piece. So basically it is inexplicable why he has any involvement in this story other than the possibility that he got the leak. And since he got the leak, he has to be on the story just in fairness and, and, you know, fairness to him, fairness to readers. And so he's on this one. So it's the same channel, almost certainly. You could sort of say, well, it's, he's continuing on the story, maybe. But yeah, I, I read it as just the way it's framed is, as, as you said, it's framed with all these like, ah, oh, one conservative insider says this one conservative insider who is at it is always there at the coffee table when Sam Alito is having his tea in the morning also says that, you know, it, it it's kind of treated as an open secret now. We're not pretending it's a, like a liberal clerk. Um, so, yeah, I did get that. It, it just it's obvious in everything about the new story. Yeah. I mean, and I've, I've just always thought even though the leak is only kind of, I mean, it's more of a fun parlor game than really important at this point, but it was just also always seemed to me that conservatives had more to gain from the leak than liberals did. Like the kind of idea of, oh, well, you want to galvanize Democrats, like what, six weeks before they'd be galvanized anyway. That almost seems like that could hurt Democrats in the sense that we tend to have short attention spans and short energy reserves. So you wouldn't really want to tap that too far out before the midterms. Um, and for Republicans, you would have the benefit of locking a situation you like in place. Yeah, I, I've always, I mean, there's this kind of, you know, one one thing people are saying is, well, six weeks head start. On what? Yeah, exactly. Like on on what? It just, it just, are you, you know, you're, you're not building a fort, right? I mean, you're, it, it makes no sense. I think the only, the, the way that I saw this um, 
captured by one person that really kind of captured it to me. If it's a liberal, it is, and this can fall into some stereotypes, but I don't mean it, you know, I think I mean it in a just in a more direct sense. If it's a liberal, it is a emotional outrage decision. It just kind of fuck this. I'm just going to leak this because like you only live once and fuck this. It, it, it has no, there's no strategy behind it. It just doesn't accomplish anything for, for people who support Roe, as opposed to just sort of like a, you know, kind of like a primal scream sort of thing. Whereas there are, as you say, very clear cut reasons why it can be helpful to conservatives because you sort of advertise, you know, the mother load is on offer, you know, and it, it's sort of like, as often happens in sports or all sorts of competitions, you got five votes. Call, you know, bring the, bring the courtroom to a close. You're done. <laughs> you can only get worse, you know, because six doesn't matter. Exactly. Who cares? And so just stop it now. And, and, and so it, it has a stop it now effect. And, uh, well, we, we know all that's all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's interesting. It certainly pales in comparison to the substantive issue of reversing Roe, but I don't think it's just insider curi, you know, kind of idle curiosity. It tells you, it, it actually tells you stuff about the conservative legal movement, how they are operating on the court, how they are operating in concert with the larger republic, you know, right-wing, uh, you know, conservative legal movement. Those things are real. Those things have a lot of impact on things. So in that sense, what the origin of the leak is, and the, and, and the fact that there were other leaks to the Wall Street Journal before this, that, that even though some people had some very kind of like elaborate explanations, like, well, conservatives were leaking to the Wall Street Journal and a few other places, and the political leak wasn't, you know, it's not the logical thing where we know all these leaks were having, you know, were taking place, except this one political, that was Democrats getting back at the conservatives for their leaking. Well, maybe, but, but it all seems kind of together. And those things, those things are significant in terms of understanding where the court is going, uh, how corrupted it is, blah, 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 blah. Those are, you know, because there are other decisions besides Roe that also mean a lot. And so we want to understand how these things are, you know, how these things are working. Yeah. So let's talk about the parallel kind of legislative effort that's going on while we speak. So right after the leak came out, you know, there was tremendous pressure on Democrats to do something. You know, what the thing is, is a bit of a sticky wicket, as we've discussed, because there are all of these institutional and, you know, kind of rigged obstacles to Democrats doing anything meaningful. But the end game of that pressure was Schumer basically had to call a vote on this bill that passed the House last year that, like you say, Josh, would not... I mean, people have been using codified row as kind of shorthand, but it would go further. It would, um, among other things, it's specifically written to kind of head off these favored tactics by red states to make abortions really hard to get. Like, you know, delays in treatment, you have to go four times before you can get it, making providers have, uh, you know, special privileges and, and all those kind of things. So they're holding that vote later this afternoon. There is no drama at all anymore, because even though we always knew it wasn't going to pass because of the filibuster and because 
it should be mentioned, mansion and cinema support of said filibuster. There were not even the votes for a simple majority vote here. Really, the only interesting thing that came out of this is that yesterday, Bob Casey, senator from Pennsylvania, put out a statement saying he would not only vote on you know the procedural motion to proceed, which is the point at which the filibuster kicks in, but he would vote for the underlying legislation if there were a way to get there. And again, in this situation, that's a symbolic thing. But that's huge because Bob Casey has been, you know, quote unquote, pro-life his whole career, following in the footsteps of his father, who was a governor of Pennsylvania, who's the Casey in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So this has been a big part of his identity for a very long time, despite the fact that he hasn't been like Manchin-esque about his abortion stance. His voting record in Congress is somewhat mixed. He's actually gotten mostly positive scores from groups like Planned Parenthood because, you know, he voted for a 20-week ban, but then also voted not to strip funding from Planned Parenthood. And he voted to proceed to debate on this specific bill last year. So, you know, it's not like it's totally out of the blue, but it's a major shift in position to say he would vote for a bill that so drastically expands abortion rights. I, I, I- I, f- I found it surprising, mm-hmm. pleasantly surprising, but surprising. And and I had, I mean, my basic feeling about this, to the extent you know anybody you know want, wants to hear it, is that you get you get whatever bill has some plausible path to getting passed, 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 right? And so you're only going to get this has to be after the next election there's just no you you know 49 votes at a max but i thought it would be i thought it'd be 48 votes mm-hmm. i didn't think he would go along with it you know there's this there is this uh, other bill that um you know the nominally pro choice senators from alaska and maine support and it is i guess it's probably more tightly mm-hmm. uh tightly uh, you know, outlined around the current row where you have all these other, you know, and, and for our listeners, these are restrictions that in theory have nothing to do with, with allowing you or not allowing you, but just make it really hard. Again, the kind of thing like, you know, you already have to drive 400 miles to get, to get the abortion, but you come the first day, we can only do it the next day, all these kind of things. So there for that, and I mean, if that was the only thing on offer, pass that, right? I mean, that at least kind of holds us where we are right now. Um, but again, it's only man. Aside from Mansion, all the Democrats are ready to vote for this. And again, that's that's uh, that's more than I thought there would be. Now, obviously, the the real question is how many would vote to meaningfully change the filibuster rules. And I don't. And see, this is the kind of thing I know. I'm. I'm <laughs> I know I'm hogging the mic here, but this this one thing is so important. I got to say it. This is the thing where you know, if you everybody should be calling their senators, asking them. Fine, you're going to vote for this bill. Are you willing to? You know, yes or no. Are you willing to amend the filibuster rules to allow it to pass in the next Congress? Because that's really the deal. And I suspect that it is 48, 47, something, you know, something like that. But you got to get the specifics. You got to get clarity. That's where everything starts to mean something. Then you can say, you know, we need two more senators. Let's go out and get them. Yeah. I mean, I would say 
I would say safely. I think if they did hold a, another vote on making a filibuster carve out with this being the driving underlying legislation versus how it was voting rights, I would still think you would get 48. I think it'd be Mansion and Cinema again. But I think I agree with you that I think the Casey thing is important, even if it changes nothing about this current dynamic, because the same way I think it was really important to get proof that 48 Democrats were at least willing to reform the filibuster. That's super important because that is now going to be a litmus test. If you're a Democrat running for the Senate, you are going to be asked, where do you stand on the filibuster and where do you stand on abortion rights? And that's huge because even though I understand it's super demoralizing for Democrats to see them fall short by one vote or two votes, it's important to have that knowledge because First of all, it doesn't let Manchin kind of like hide in a crowd. It, it really does put the spotlight on who is holding up progress. And it just it makes it a prerequisite to be a Democratic senator. You've got to be on board with these things. And I think that's really important, even though there's also a part of me that's like, that may not even matter because I can see a situation where the very next time Republican senators have the Senate, they blow up the filibuster anyway. But yeah, I mean, it, you know, look, t- to me, the great enemy in politics is always the opacity of the process. Mm-hmm. You know, I voted. I don't even know why why it didn't happen. Like, what, what the, that amb- ambiguity? And that's why when I was kind of pushing on the Social Security stuff back almost 20 years ago, the big thing was, the, the, the idea was, oh, you know, Democrats, they... The Republicans are going to do this. So Democrats are against it, but how against it and, you know, how much and, and you know, they may have to compromise to at least, you know, make the damage as little as possible. What you need to do is you zoom in on the on the specific people. And in this case, it's already been presumed to a certain, you know, to a great extent. We know who the two people are. There's some question of like, you know, maybe Angus King won't vote to change the filibuster on abortion. I think he will. But I mean, those are the kind of things that maybe there's some, you know, some some uh, ambiguity at, 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 at the margins. But, you know, you get it down, you say 48. And, and I'll tell you, um, I would not count out Kirsten Cinema. Obviously, I think at least abortion rights is a bigger issue for her. Than, than a lot of the issues that were that were the BBB issue, you know, build back better issues. But it's not that that makes me think she's going to change her mind. It's that next in the next Congress, if, you know, great surprise, Democrats, you know, expand their margin in, 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 in the Senate, she's going to be looking at reelection coming in the very near future. And I think she has she has already destroyed herself politically. I'm pretty confident of that. The one way I think, I mean, she wouldn't redeem herself to me, but I think she would redeem herself enough to she could get reelected is if she said in 2023, this is so important. I'm going to be that extra vote that gets us over the margin. And now we have, you know, the row bill she could play that up and that would again it wouldn't redeem her in my eyes but it would redeem her in a lot of people's eyes and it would be a big deal yeah one thing that happened just before we went on the air is mansion solidified that he was a no on this bill he said i mean and let's keep in mind mansion is not what we would call a policy wonk per se so 
he hasn't given specifics, but he basically said this bill is too broad. I would support something that would codify Roe. Okay, fine. The thing that Let's it, talk about it for six months. Yeah, Let's get to exactly. the bottom of it. And it. Well, that's the thing. It's just like, okay, super. So then it's like, okay, so you're going to sign on to the Tim Kaine, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski bill that they're working on. And oh, then, Kane's, in, uh, Kane's involved? I didn't yeah, know Yeah, he's kind of the one Sherpaing it on the Democratic interesting, side. Interesting, interesting, But it's like, okay, then your opposition to the filibuster will keep all that hard work from going anywhere. I mean, it's just a, it's a redo of his various conferences on like voting rights bills. It's like, okay, great. It's great. You're having these conversations and then you are going to stop the legislation from going anywhere. But the thing that I'm kind of curious about, and I'm sure we will never know because he, I doubt he knows himself while, why he's opposing this bill is that all the floor speeches I've watched this morning from Republicans are basically carbon copies of each other in that they focus almost exclusively on late term abortions. And they say like this bill will let, uh, you know, women rip babies from their wombs, like moments before birth kind of thing. And, you know, it, it is worth being, it's worth saying because I think the anti-abortion movement has been incredibly effective in certain ways. And this is one of them, you know, when they're like at protests with signs with bloody, like, completely developed fetuses on them. The truth of the matter is late-term abortions are super, super, super rare. And often they're because there are wanted pregnancies that there are medical issues with the fetus or medical issues that would put the the mother's health at risk. And that's that's a tragic situation. And then the other biggest factor to late-term abortions are the restrictions that Republicans have put into place, which is making care impossible, shuttering all the clinics but one, creating massive wait lists because now people are flooding the few places that are available, making people travel 500 miles to get it, muddying up the insurance coverage so people can't figure out how to pay for it. That's it's a direct ramification of Republican actions that there are more late-term abortions, but they're up there pretending Pending. Again, is a page from the anti-abortion playbook that like women are callous and cavalier about abortions and they're just going to go have one at a late term for fun, you know, just because they are having sex left, right and sideways, can't even keep track of things as if any woman would prefer a late term abortion over an early term abortion where you yeah, can I just mean, take it, two pills and be done. <laughs> well, and even even if it is a a procedure abortion, you know, if you posit that hypothetical frivolous abortion getting woman who kind of, you know, who doesn't use birth control and like, eh, if I get pregnant, I'll just have an abortion. Clearly, she wants to get an abortion within the first few weeks after she finds out she's pregnant. That's just obvious and completely obvious. And I think we all know from experience, either as uh, as people who've been pregnant or people who are spouses of being pregnant or just living in the world, that when you're seven months pregnant, you're really pregnant. And like you've gotten there for a reason, right? If you if you ha- end up having an abortion, that is is almost always because something has really gone wrong. A lot of times, it's something medically has gone very wrong. Sometimes it's something other, you know, life thing. But in my experience, got to be a pretty big life thing. I don't. I, I. I have never known uh, any woman who was seven months pregnant. It's going. Eh. 
Yeah, I don't think so. Again, that's not life. In any case, what what is and and everybody knows that's not life. I'm not telling you in telling anybody anything they don't know. What strikes me about those speeches you mentioned, though, is that really captures the current political dynamic, because we're not talking about late term abortion here. You can you can talk about it till you're red in the face. What we're talking about here is no abortion. No abortion rights at all. That's obvious. That's what we're talking about here. And you can tell that, I mean, they've won. Do a victory lap. Why aren't you doing a victory lap? They should, they should be saying, hey, abortion's wrong. Abortion's murder. It's done. Great. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, why would I, why would I vote for this law that undoes what we have accomplished after 50 years of work. But they're still talking about late-term abortions and, and, you know, kind of all the, all the horror story stuff that Republicans have gotten so much mileage out of. Because look, no one, as we were saying, no one, no one likes the idea of a, a person, a woman seven months pregnant getting an abortion. Most normal people don't like it because they know something bad, really bad happened. And kind of like, okay, you found out that your the fetus is developing without a brain. And now this baby you've been waiting for with all the excitement you can muster is you have to have an abortion. A lot of Americans want it to be a right, but they don't want to hear about late term abortions. They don't want to, the, you know, just they, they don't want it kind of in their face. And that's just a reality. It's too bad. You know that there, that there's all that there's all, all that stuff, but the Republicans are unwilling to actually get behind where this is, and that I think tells us as clearly as anything can their political vulnerability and the political opening for Democrats. Not just opening in the sense of like, ooh, we can get some more votes, blah 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 blah, blah but opening to actually change this because you really can change this. Yeah. I also, this is an aside, but it's something I've been thinking a lot about. I think that the discomfort with talking about abortion is also a mark of the success of the anti-abortion movement. And I think it comes from this this bifurcation of abortion is solely a women's issue. You know, it's a gross thing that just happens to women. It's kind of, it's honestly an offshoot of how people don't talk about periods. You know, no, it's I was like, oh, gross, uncomfortable. Yep. A lot of medical stuff is gross and uncomfortable, you know, but like colonoscopies aren't hidden behind a curtain the same way that abortions are. And I think that has been so successful because you shroud it in stigma and shame. And it's, a you know, an extension of a way to shame women for having sex. So it's all of that. And then you can't talk about it. And that has been effective in a lot of ways, including that I've heard from multiple people shock in the last two weeks when they found out that one in four women have had an abortion. That's so many women. But the way it's talked about, it's like this super shameful, traumatic, you know, back alley thing. And that's on purpose. And I think that works really well because then you have an American populace who's like, oh, gross. Like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about the ramifications for making this healthcare impossible for people to get. And that, and now they have everyone kind of exactly where they mm -hmm. want them. Mm -hmm. It is, it's low down on the list of, of things important to this, but it is striking when you either visit or read about other political cultures, cultures that 
we share a lot with and, and we just, you know, kind of, uh, you know, industrial, you know, kind of modern industrial democracies, you know, kind of advanced healthcare, blah, 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 blah. There are a lot of countries where this is just not an issue. It's just not an issue at all. It doesn't, you know, it would be, and and certainly um, from the outside, it must be like, you know, that, that uh, if some other country was like super hung up on, you know, ACL surgeries, you know, what's the, what's the issue, right? And uh, it's just striking how big an issue it is in this country. And I think we generally know why that is. But again, lots of countries, it's just not an issue. Right. Just and, a you know, there has been a noted expansion of abortion rights, even in very, you know, Catholic countries like Ireland. So it just, it shows... I think and that was only what, like seven or eight years ago. It was relatively maybe yeah. even more recent, like five or six years. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty recent. Yeah. 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 So another thing we want to talk about here is uh, the issue that is making me crazy right now, which is the pearl clutching over the protests that have broken out after the leaked opinion um, at it's happened at some of the conservative justices houses. Some people dared to write a chalk message in front of Susan Collins house, which I would love to add included the word please. And it was in, on the sidewalk. It was on begging, the sidewalk. Exactly. And yeah, begging her yeah, to pass yeah, yeah. this legislation. And yet she called the police. So we are currently in this like perfect situation for Democrats to be the most frustrating that they ever are, which is now of course, because people suck. All the questions are like, well, what do you think about the protests? Is that acceptable in our public square? And I actually thought Chuck Schumer dealt with it summarily and very well yesterday when he got this question at his press conference. And he was like, yeah, if they're peaceful, that's fine. People protest at my house three or four times a week. Like, that's life. And it's like, that is <laughs> correct. If you're wielding this disproportionate amount of power over people's rights, you don't get to be comfortable all the time. That's not part of the equation. You get to be, you know, they don't get to be physical against you. They don't get to be violent, but you don't get to be comfortable. And that's something that these super powerful people have like never understood. You know, even remember all that dust up around uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, like being heckled at a restaurant. That was this huge scandal. And it's like, what are you talking about? These people are disproportionately powerful. People get to protest them. It's funny. I, I have probably slightly more conservative views on this, but not much. I would say this. Um, I know from even even uh, e even my very minor celebrity, right? You have people. People say things. They write things to you sometimes that are kind of like, "Ugh, that's a little." you know, threats and stuff like that. It, it, it's, it's, it's not, that's not fun. I would, I haven't looked into this closely, but I would assume that police have put up like, you know, kind of like lines and stuff like that. I don't think they should be like banging on their windows or something like that, which, which I think is menacing. Um, I don't think they should be trampling on their lawn, right? Messing up their property. I would assume the police have said, okay, here's a line. You can, you know, you can't, you can't go onto their property. You can do whatever, feel bad for their neighbors. Right. They're not writing any Supreme Court decisions, um, but kind of where Schumer is, you're not allowed to be violent. You can't you can't, you know, destroy property. But I, but again, I doubt the police are just like, yeah, nothing to do with us. <laughs> That's not how it works. Right. I'm sure there are kind of like protest lines and stuff like that set up and kind of, you know, 
it's not my cup of tea, but that's free speech. And and there has been this dynamic in the last 20 years or so that has followed the increasing uh, concentration of wealth and power in the in the in the country that the very the very wealthy and the very powerful not only get to be very wealthy and very powerful but they need additional rights to be protected from the public responses to their being very wealthy and very powerful and that may you know, maybe I'm part of the same mentality at some level. Maybe that's coming out in the in the, in my views on the house protest stuff. But where where it's always really struck me is there's been a lot of laws now that campaign finance disclosure shouldn't apply to the really really big givers because that will like invite people to target them and be mean to them and do whatever, right? And you know, I mean, I, it's at some level, I get the idea. If, if you got all the money, it's going to bring a lot of the anger at you, right? But like, as you say, huh, you, you, can't have, you can't have it both ways. You can't have all the money. And, and, and you know, again, that, and this comes up a lot in campaign finance stuff. Like, sure, you get 500 bucks. You got to, you know, you got to be on those disclosure lists that all of us journalists look up to see about someone's political giving. But if you get a million dollars, you need special protection because people are going to get pissed. I mean, you know, that that's, it is very oligarchic kind of thinking. Well, and exactly. And it's such kind of the censorship thing from the right wing, which is not saying that they, which is the root of it is I should get to say whatever I want and nobody should get to be mean to me about that. And I shouldn't be made to feel bad about that. And I shouldn't have to deal with being heckled. And like, look, as a human, the idea of dealing with that kind of public confrontation makes me want to die. But that's also why I'm not trying to be a Supreme Court justice or a senator. Like you were or also, not rich, forced rich into these roles. <laughs> rich people do not have to become huge political donors. Exactly. Now, I, I do think it is... There is some line. We don't want people to be like menaced, you know, because if you're if you're like menaced, if you're threatened, then you kind of don't have free speech. Right. It's just it, it's it's but we're not talking about menacing and threatening here. Just can say, you know, Josh sucks. I hate Josh. And maybe a bunch of people, you know, police won't let him in front of my, you know, I have an I live in an apartment building, but, you know, kind of same difference, right? They won't let them come to on our sidewalk, but across the street, they'll be like, Josh sucks, Josh sucks. Well, <laughs> if you want to get involved in the political process, it's, it's, it's you know, uh, it's free speech both ways. You don't have to, you don't have to use your wealth. You know, wealth gives you the ability to have vastly more political power than the average person. And if you avail yourself of that opportunity, people may not like you. And that's how it goes. Well, and the other piece of it, too, is that we are now, especially with this, with the row stuff, we're in a situation where the ordinary person has so little power to affect what happens next. I mean, the most power a normal voter has at this point is to like vote in officials who they think will support abortion rights in a year and a half or in the, I guess it's 2022, God in the fall. Yeah. yeah. But, 
I just, I think it's crazy to, for your reaction as Dick Durbin did this morning to be like, unacceptable, uncivil. Like what? You're talking about doing this generational rollback in civil rights and people can't even protest that when we've seen that protesting is sometimes, especially in recent history, been very effective in kind of changing the stems of they're changing the political tides. I mean, look at the ACA. That was the last time I think we had like really big prolong- prolonged protests. And then the repeal effort failed. You could even point to, even though it didn't work, but you know, during the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, the, the moment from that that's so emblazoned in my brain is when those activists kind of cornered Jeff Flake yeah, outside yeah, the elevator yeah. and were crying and telling him their stories. And it didn't work, but it at least gave him enough pause to be like, oh, shit, maybe we should take a minute. It did slow things down a little. And yeah. they, and, and I think they got kind of hoodwinked on that thing with the FBI investigation. But I don't think I don't think I think Jeff Flake w- involved himself there on a good faith basis. Yeah. Of and, and then I think they kind of just snookered him on on, you know, there wasn't really an investigation. I mean, again, I. I some things I see, not this kind of stuff, it does, you know, kind of I'm in a slightly different place. You know, there's certain, you know, I think you think about it. Um, you always have to think about it if the if it's the person's house who, if it's someone you sympathize with. And is it a bunch of kind of whacked out Trumpers? You know, are are, are they are they protesting outside a person's house? I mean, are they a certain distance? Can the person get in and out of their house? Um, there's certainly things that I have seen on the other side where, you know, you show up with guns and stuff or even without guns. There's certain there, there's uh, even as much as I loathe him. Some of the stuff that with the Tucker Carlson thing when they were outside his house, they were they were kind of going on, you know, kind of stuff that if it were my house, I'd be kind of scared. Right. I was like, okay, there's a lot of people out there and they're kind of angry and they're, they're, they're not staying a certain distance. So whatever. I mean, it's, this is a, a minor thing. This is just my, you know, how I see the world. But I think for someone like Durbin, it is, it is part of a larger point. And on that point, I 100% agree with you. Maybe you say like, maybe Durbin says, hey, that's not my thing, but this is a huge thing. People are very upset we are going to do everything we can to reverse this. And maybe some of these protests are not what I would do, but that's just not the big issue here. The big issue here is that half the people in the country are about to lose a fundamental right. But what I think really gets to a lot of people, and it's what you just described, is it's kind of like, okay, okay, hey, we're all down with, with we want Roe, but don't get out of hand. Don't, you know, like, like, hey, you know, j- just that kind of like, suddenly this is what's really important, not right. standing outside people's houses. And that, that, that is just, it's not just something I disagree with. It, you just inject a certain toxicity, like a toxin into your own political movement. Because I think people, I think probably especially women, but certainly not only women on the, on the democratic pro-choice side of things see that and like wait you're 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 the general you're leading the forces and then and that's that's what really kind of suddenly you're freaked that's that's too much like what's going on here yeah 
Yeah. I mean, I also think it's important just because as we've talked about before, people like Supreme Court justices and U.S. senators are living in as kind of hemmed off of bubbles as everybody else is. And I do think that, you know, I don't think it's a situation where Brett Kavanaugh is like, it's baffling to him that people are upset about this decision. But I do think probably pretty much everyone in his life is like, this is awesome. This is a really good decision. You're protecting so many unborn babies. I that's We tend to run in circles with people who agree with us. And I think it's important on that level to kind of be forced to see what the other side is saying, to witness the emotion and the anger and the pain of the people that are on the other side of that decision. I think that's what happened with the Jeff Flake thing. And I think it's important. If you are someone who wields all this power, you shouldn't get to do it from the top of an unbreachable tower where you're just kind of surrounded by people who agree with you and it's the self-reinforcing circle. Like, you know, we were talking about this with how I think we were talking about Bill Barr and saying, you know, he's an old guy who watches Fox News. I mean, we are in these like self-reinforcing loops. And if you are someone who has this disproportionate amount of power over people's lives, I think you should have to look that in the face at times. 100% agree. The whole the whole thing to me is just you shouldn't have to fear violence. Yeah, I agree. As, I agree. as just as just a as as just a baseline. I would say I think with Kavanaugh, it's not just that yeah, his his crew, they all think it's awesome. They may think it's awesome for deeply religious reasons, just a huge ass political victory, but they all think it's awesome. But I would say that I think he also knows a lot of people in kind of elite legal political circles who, you know, who disagree with this, but are kind of in that in that uh, uh, Dick Durbin mode. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, mm-hmm. big defeat for our side. I'm so upset about this. And like, ni- ni- nice to see you. Um, uh, wait, what's Kavanaugh's first name? <laughs> Brad. Good to see you, Brad. Always, always good to, you know. You guys won this one, Brett. Yes. Yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> of just uh, of of uh, among many political people, if the top tax rate goes from 38 to 36, that is a big deal because those, you know, that money's going to was needed for lots of things. Um, it's a big deal. You fight really hard. But I don't think you say, oh, the, the person who wanted it to be 38%, like, oh, fuck them. I will never, I can never speak to you again. And, and you're dead to me. I'm like, okay, there's another election. And I do think that is the sort of the Durban to protester thing, kind of like, this is not just another election. This isn't kind of like, you know, we, we, you want, you know, you want an election and, and we're tweaking the tax code a little bit at the margins. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, boo Dick Durbin. Boo Dick Durbin. Yeah. 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 Also, it's just, it continues to be funny to me that Kavanaugh's name is Brett. I mean, that is, if you would put that in a script, people would be like, okay, too much. We get it. He's like a lax bro, you know? Well, it could be, I'm trying to think what would be more. What is a more bro name? Chad. Maybe Chad or like your nickname is Dutch. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that would be, I think- Yeah, Yeah, exactly. 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 Okay. So let's take this question from John, 
who says, is there a case to be made under the privileges and immunities clause of the Constitution that has been interpreted by the court since the early 1800s as constituting freedom of movement, which would be reaffirmed in the 14th Amendment? Uh, One could argue that the abortion bans themselves constitute a freedom of movement problem. But as soon as they add these lines to prosecute people who help someone travel for an abortion or for the person who themselves travels, then you're violating privileges and immunities. And uh, he adds, I realize this court could just make something up and ignore the claim of the freedom of movement. But in terms of a long term strategy working to undo this decision, have you heard any folks talking about this? Um, I would say I did a story I don't even know. I don't know what time is anymore in the not so recent past where I was talked to people. There's especially this like trio of law professors who have been hyper focused on this for a while. The amount of interjurisdictional disputes that are going to come to the fore in a post row world. And I would say absolutely there's a privileges and immunities case. I mean, also there's due process, citizenship clause, dormant commerce clause. Like there's a lot of things here that come to play. Um, I think the point of this court can do whatever it wants is a pretty important one. Um, But yeah, I mean, people think that, you know, when that Missouri House bill came up that would have criminalized the traveling for an abortion, that's what I was talking to people about. And they were like, yeah, this is almost definitely not constitutional because our country is kind of based on this idea that you can travel to other states and, uh, you know, I mean, we have a lot of stuff like this and enjoy the rights of that state. That's why people used to go to, um, you know, Vegas when gambling was only legal there and we have it with marijuana and everything. But the problem is they're just, it's relatively, there's scant case law around these issues. And that doesn't mean that the arguments are weaker. It just means it's even easier for this particular court to be like, "Mm, no, we're we're not going to worry about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, first of all, to to the to the questioner's point, at least as I understood it, that is there is just a ban on abortion in Texas itself problematic in terms of the privileges and immunities clause, or you know, kind of right to travel. Uh, on the travel thing, I don't think so. I mean, there's no. I mean, if you take away the privacy jurisprudence arguments. I don't know why a state can't make abortion illegal. It's, you know, they can make whatever illegal they want unless there's a, con- you know, a constitutional uh, uh, prohibition against it. On these ones that that basically kind of say you can't go somewhere else, that's, that is so clearly unconstitutional. And I would say so deeply out of you know, in an extra constitutional sense, so deeply out of the mores of the entire country's history. South Carolina can't tell you you can't leave. You know, South Carolina doesn't control you. You can get up and leave and do whatever. There's some, you know, there's some very minor things states can do. They can say, you know, you know, you have to have lived here for a little while to vote. You know, you, you can't vote the day you move in, all these kind you know all these kind of things and there's various things at the margin in terms of being uh you know where you're doing business and stuff but the idea that that a state won't allow you to leave the state to do th- something that is legal in another state is is so totally out of line with the entire 
tradition of American history that I'm skeptical that even this court will try to do it. I, I, I think they are totally unbound by, they make up whatever they want. I'm pretty skeptical that even they would be able to make that stick. It, it's just, it's just absurd on its face. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I'm curious. I'm sure as we've seen with, with anti-abortion forces and other cases, I'm sure they'll get very creative with indirect ways of accomplishing the same thing, much as they have with, you know, you shut down an abortion clinic just by saying, okay, you know, abortion clinics must have uh, Formica countertops that are no no more than four feet and all this, you know, all these kind of ridiculous things. Um, but again, I don't, I'm sure they'll try. I'm sure they'll come up with some pretty good stuff, but that's, that's, tough because you can you can go wherever the fuck you want. Yeah, I mean the only thing that gives me pause here is that the Texas bounty hunter law is so insane and also just really flies in the face of the way our judicial system is supposed to work. And the fact that they let that stand continues to be stunning to me, not least because it's just so easy to see a situation where Somebody, you know, of some kind of like blue issue uses the same scheme of avoiding judicial review and, uh, you know, uses the same thing to avoid to avoid the problem. But in that case, the court was like willing to take away its own power to let this stand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I agree with you. It seems unthinkable that they would okay some kind of way of states telling each other what to do because it really that is a pretty basic foundation of our whole legal system but i I think that i have underestimated the speed and the extremity with which this court would kind of tear everything down for their own interests so i don't know i have no confidence in anything anymore yeah no i i i hear you on that um i it's it's funny, you know, one of the things that one of the jurisdictions the Supreme Court has, and I think actually one of the few jurisdictions that are actually in the Constitution that can't be, you know, amended by, by Congress, um, is that it is the court for lawsuits between states. Mm-hmm. And that has, for most of our history, generally just comes up with like border disputes. There was actually a border dispute you know, kind of a nominal one, but actually one that went on for a long time between New Jersey and New York that was just resolved relatively, I think in the last 20 years, I can't remember. It has to do with like one of the islands, maybe Staten, not Staten Island, but uh, maybe the island where uh, Statue of Liberty, whatever. In any case, it's the court of original jurisdiction for suits between states. And if states do start doing this, I would think there would be and I don't know how standing works between states, but I would think that New York would have some standing to say, Texas is interfering with the, with the, with the function of our laws. You're saying that you know, this person came to New York, they did things legal in New York, and you're saying you're trying to, you know, to uh, say they're guilty of a crime. You're, you're, th- there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of interstate stuff there that um, even if you don't, even if you don't come at it from an individual person's right to go wherever they want, there's a lot of different stuff there. Um, and uh, 
you know, it, 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 it's, it's funny because it is, um, it's something that, you know, we have a somewhat unique system of, of, you know, dual sovereignties in this country. The states can't leave, but they're not just creations of the federal government. They have the, they have an independent sovereignty and, uh, the federal government can't just, you know, like they do in France every few years. Well, let's just mix it up a little. Come up with different different jurisdictions and provinces or whatever they call them. Um, so that whole federalist thing, if you go in this direction, brings up a lot of a lot of things. Kind of don't work, right? Because if you start saying, "Well, my people can't go there," and it all falls apart. I'm, I'm. Well, we'll see. It's a corrupt Supreme Court, so they can they can try a lot of things. I do think, though, that's going to be the next kind of frontier that we are talking about. It's all going to be interjurisdictional. It, it seems stuff. it seems like there's already um, a lot of laws that are either on the verge of passage or have already been passed. That that in very, I mean, I guess you could say, just kind of brainstorming now. I guess you might say that it is illegal in Texas for a Texas company to advertise about getting abortions in New York. You know, maybe they can't stop you from going, but you can't advertise. I mean, good luck with that, considering, I mean, I know a bit about how advertising works. Believe me, it's, it doesn't matter whether you're in Texas or not. Um, but I would, you know, kind of things like that at the margins, I, I who knows? I guess we'll, we'll find out soon enough, won't we'll we? We'll find out. Yeah. All right. So uh, let me remind you that uh, the Josh Marshall Podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off if you use the promo code TPM, and they are at Grady'sColdBrew.com. And I guess that's it for this week. All right. All See right. You next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.